Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. And I'm Adam Feuerstein. It is Thursday, October 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The FDA is holding an all-important meeting on COVID-19 vaccines. Our STAT colleague, Helen Branswell, joins us to explain its implications and why experts hope it's pretty boring. Biotech is living in the golden age of blank check IPOs, which invite investors to buy shares in companies that don't quite exist yet. University of Michigan business professor Eric Gordon calls in to explain how we got here and why it's risky. You know, once upon a time in a world where COVID had not yet happened, there was nothing that loomed larger in biotech than a controversial Alzheimer's drug from Biogen. An FDA verdict on that drug is coming and we'll discuss. And finally, we'll end this episode with yet another surprise announcement. This one, happier, we promise. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. As we record this podcast, the FDA is making history, holding its first public hearing on potential vaccines for COVID-19. The content of the meeting has been less than dramatic, but that's exactly the point. Since the dawn of the pandemic, we've seen FDA misstatements, overt political pressure, and President Trump's unforgettable endorsement of an unproven COVID-19 medicine. So what we're getting now is a long, detailed, and occasionally boring discussion among experts diving into the many scientific and practical details of developing and distributing novel vaccines. Outside observers say that's by design. This is the FDA's chance to show the public that it's not answering to the White House or to drug companies or to the many amateur virologists on Twitter, but rather relying on its thousands of career scientists with decades of experience. Our stat colleague, Helen Branswell, has been tuned into the FDA meeting. She joins us now to talk about it. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. So, Helen, as you wrote for STAT earlier this week, no one expected anything extraordinary to happen during this meeting, but the very fact of its existence seemed like an assurance that the adults in the room were in control. How has it played out so far? (laughs) There have been no surprises so far. Uh, The meeting just broke for about a 20-minute lunch break. There have been multiple presentations so far, I think about six or seven, very much laying the table here. What expert after expert has been doing has been talking about the epidemiology of the disease, the work that's being done to try to make sure that these vaccines can be distributed when they become available, the um, types of vaccines that are being developed, the systems that FDA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are putting in place to try to uh, ensure that if anything goes wrong after people start to get these vaccines, if there are any adverse events that start to appear, that they'll be able to catch them quickly and figure out which vaccine uh, is responsible. So all of that kind of very basic uh, information, which is critical to the safe and effective use of vaccines, is being presented to the to the panel in this portion of the um, day. And in fact, after the lunch break, there'll be more of this. And then late in the day, there'll be a session for public comment. And then the committee will start to talk about issues about that you know concern them or things they think the FDA should or shouldn't add to 
you know, the list of, of things it has to do to get these things out. So for people who don't make a habit of following FDA minutiae, you know, in kind of big picture, what purpose does this meaning serve? So this is one of a number of advisory committees that advise agencies like the FDA, like the CDC, on, you know, key questions. They're outside experts. Most of them are academics. Um, a lot of them are clinicians. There's, a, you know, a biostatistician here. There is uh, at least one industry rep but who, who cannot vote, but who could, you know, present uh, points of view from the industry. I believe there is a public a representative of the public in, in the mix as well. So these are people who are pretty well versed in, you know, the challenges of, of developing and distributing vaccines. There are also people who are very well versed in, you know, what might happen if you start to administer a new vaccine in a, you know, a wide population. And their um, purpose here is to essentially listen to the plans and then say to the FDA, you know, we think you might want to tweak this or we have real concerns about that. And just to clarify, be clear, the panel that's going on today that you're watching, they're not actually looking at or being presented with the data from these ongoing COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials, right? We're still waiting for those data. Yeah, that's absolutely right. In fact, that's what I was trying to get to earlier when I said this is setting the table. This group is going to meet multiple times over the next few months. In fact, the members have been told that they may be called upon to sit for three days in November and three days in December. And the plan is that when there are data for individual vaccines, they will be presented to VRPAC. But at this point, this is about the general questions around how COVID vaccines should be authorized and, you know, what questions need to be answered before they can be rolled out. So on that topic, one of the major questions going into this meeting relates to basically potential unintended consequences of rapid vaccine approvals. The FDA will likely allow for emergency use of COVID-19 vaccines after they've shown early signs of safety and efficacy. But it seems like there's some concern as to how might that disrupt the effort to gather long-term data on just how well these vaccines work? Yeah, this this is an enormously difficult question. And I'm surprised that it's only coming up now because people would have known this was coming for months. With vaccines, it's always best to be first. The first one across the line has a lower bar to meet than any that come behind it. Typically, what would happen would be the first vaccine has to show that it is effective at preventing whatever it is you're trying to prevent. All vaccines that come after that have to show that they're at least as good as that first vaccine. That's a higher bar, requires a lot bigger studies, uh, takes a lot more time, and people don't frankly want to have to require uh, manufacturers to switch over to doing these kinds of studies, which are called non-inferiority studies. But whether that is going to happen or not is, is still unclear. Uh, another thing that arises is that the, the question about, you know, once something has been proved to be effective, must you unblind uh, the study so that people who were given placebo have a chance to know that they, you know, didn't get vaccine and therefore probably aren't protected and give them an opportunity to get vaccinated. Ethically, on a, you know, individual basis, that is probably the way most studies would be conducted. But if you stop the trial or stop gathering data from the um, 
placebo group at this point, we're just going to, you know, lose big opportunities to learn a lot more about how well these vaccines work over time. The answers on this are not at all easy. That said, Pfizer has indicated that it is going to, you know, when it has efficacy data for its phase three trial, that they will uh, unblind and will offer vaccine to the people in the placebo arm. And I don't know what that does then to all of the other vaccine manufacturers. Will they have to follow suit? These are very thorny questions. The other concern, of course, is that people you know, once one vaccine makes it across the finish line, will people be willing to go into a clinical trial where they might be randomized to get placebo? Or will they just say, oh, forget about it. I'm going to wait for my turn in line to get vaccinated with the one that has been approved. And people who are in existing clinical trials might say, you know, all right, I could get the existing vaccine. I'm going to drop out of this trial and go get, you know, stand in line for vaccine. It's a stunningly complex situation. And it frankly is, uh, you know, the result of the fact that no one has ever tried to bring multiple vaccines for the for one indication to market in such a short period of time for the same thing. Well, Helen, good luck watching the rest of the panel today. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you thumbed through the financial press or flipped on CNBC over the past nine months or so, you probably noticed that the world is suddenly overrun with SPACs. A SPAC, or a special purpose acquisition company, is an old financial tool used by private companies to go public without retaining all the lawyers and bankers one needs to execute a traditional IPO. SPACs are often referred to as blank check companies because that's basically what they are. In most cases, a brand name investor starts a SPAC with the promise of merging it with another company at a later date, and then public investors buy shares in the SPAC, essentially writing a blank check, and that name brand investor goes out and finds a merger target. In the end, a private company goes public without an IPO, and the SPAC investors become its shareholders. 2020 has become the year of the SPAC, with more than 80 blank check firms going public since January. And the phenomenon has been particularly popular in biotech, with some of the biggest name investors launching SPACs and a few high-profile entrepreneurs using them to go public. But how did we get to peak SPAC so quickly? And is this actually a clever bit of financial innovation, or is it just another bubble in the making? Joining us is a professor who has experience with and a few opinions about SPACs. It is Eric Gordon of the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Eric, thanks for joining us. Hello, Damien. So, Eric, uh, before we get into the current SPAC moment, can you tell us a little bit about the history of blank check companies? And where did this idea come from? So it's an old idea, and it's an idea that up until recently has been disreputable. So SPACs, or these blank check companies, as you said, uh, were penny stocks. They were promoters who made a lot of money, even if the company tanked. They took horrendous fees, even worse than private equity people. And in fact, it was so bad that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is supposed to regulate financial shenanigans, had to put out special rules governing SPACs to kind of rein in the abuses. I mean, it's a different world today, as you mentioned, but the SPACs are kind of, uh, they still have a little bit of a taint on them. So I was curious about their popularity. The benefit to people who start SPACs is that they can make a lot of money, as you mentioned, and the allure to these private companies is that they can maybe go public without an IPO. 
But outside investors are basically asked to put their money into a mystery box, which sounds a little risky. So what is the allure of SPACs to these people and and why are so many betting on them? Yeah, so here's a quirk about SPACs. They're called blank check companies. But what's kind of interesting is you get to take your check back. In most SPACs, what happens is you commit, you put your money in uh, to the blank check company, the sponsor, uh, somebody like, you know, maybe in our world, a Brent Saunders, goes out, finds a target. When he finds that target in the typical SPAC arrangement of today, Um, The shareholders in the SPAC vote yes or no. We like this deal. We don't like this deal. And if you're a shareholder who doesn't like the deal, you usually can get most of your money back. So it's a blank check, you know, kind of on a rubber band. You know, the allure for the investors, the, the actual end people like you and I who might invest in it, is interesting to think about because the sponsor in most of these deals is taking something like 20% off the top, which is quite a haircut to, you know, for going in. I mean, if you buy a share of Pfizer, um, nobody takes 20% off the top. But it gives you an opportunity to invest with, as you said, some brand name people, uh, an opportunity which might not otherwise be available to you because the alternative might be that the company just stayed private and civilians like you and I can't get in. So the SPAC trend has been especially popular in biotech, as we mentioned. Are there particular risks to biotech blank check companies that don't exist for the ones that are focused on, let's say, you know, tech or real estate? Yes, there are. You really, if you're the end investor, you really are relying on the SPAC sponsor to buy the right company because you probably have little chance of understanding the company's risks. You have a you have a dream about the rewards, but you know the average investor doesn't understand biotech. In fact, those of us who've been in biotech for a long time, sometimes I wonder if we understand biotech. A lot of SPACs go out and they buy manufacturing companies or or retail companies or distribution companies, and individual investors think they can understand those companies, and I think surely can understand those companies a lot more easily than, you know, say, a biotech company that's at a pre-product stage. They, They don't have anything approved by the FDA. You don't know if they'll have anything approved by the FDA. All of those special risks of biotech are are in play. So most of the SPACs that have launched this year have two-year shelf lives, which means basically they have 24 months to find a merger target or else they have to give shareholders their money back. I'm curious, are there enough promising private biotech companies for all of these SPACs? Or do you think 2022 could become kind of a game of musical chairs for these people? Yeah, I think that's a big risk. I mean, we've already seen so many biotechs go public in the traditional IPO route. You, you sort of wonder what's left. You wonder if there isn't adverse selection. Did, did the really good ones go public? Are they still planning to go public? Are the ones that are going to become public sort of through the SPAC back door, are they the best deals of what's left in 2020? Uh, you know, time will tell, but you have to wonder about that. And so, Eric, you know, as you mentioned before, SPACs had their moment uh, decades ago, and then they fell out of favor. So I'm wondering, what do you think about this current blank check uh, trend, and how do you think it will play out? So I think, uh, as a whole, the current blank check trend has very little to do with the old sort of ugly days of SPACs for a couple of reasons. Uh, They tend to have 
legitimate sponsors. You know, not fly-by-night guys in Denver or Vancouver, which is where, you know, some of the penny stock stuff used to happen. I mean, you have people like Bill Ackman, who's had his successes and his failures, uh, but he's not a fly-by-night, you know, run-out-the-door-with-your-money guy. Um, Brent Saunders, you know, has had his ups and downs, but certainly knows something about what he's doing. Um, you're seeing a lot of well-known PE firms uh, with brand names to protect in the game. And they're also offering more investor-friendly terms, uh, terms that unite their interest a little bit better with the interest of the investors. They still take a bunch off the top, um, but, you know, so do VCs with their 2 and 20 carry, and so do PE guys. So I think we're seeing higher quality sponsors uh, with friendlier terms. Eric, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So in case you forgot, and, you know, it really is easy to do that, there was a time before COVID-19. And I bring this up because while we're all fixated, and rightly so, on the imminent arrival of COVID-19 vaccine data and the presidential election, there is another super important binary event happening in biotech during the first week of November. Yes, and we are talking about aducanumab. It is Biogen's experimental and quite controversial treatment for Alzheimer's disease. On November 6th, the FDA is going to convene a meeting of outside experts to review the data from two phase three clinical trials of aducanumab. And at the end of the meeting, this panel will vote on whether the drug should be approved or not. Yeah, the recommendation of this panel and the subsequent FDA approval decision on aducanumab could have an enormous impact on people with Alzheimer's and on Biogen itself. You know, there are no current medicines capable of slowing the cognitive and functional decline that occurs in people with Alzheimer's disease. So if approved, aducanumab would be the first drug to reduce cognitive decline by targeting and eliminating clumps of a toxic protein called beta amyloid that are believed to destroy the brain. It would be a significant medical achievement. And of course, it would also be a humongous deal for Biogen's bottom line. People experiencing mild cognitive impairment or, or the early signs of Alzheimer's would be the most likely to benefit from a drug like aducanumab if it reaches the market. But even restricted use would translate into blockbuster sales, depending on how much aducanumab costs, rivaling even AbbVie's Humira or Merck's Keytruda. But for that to happen, the FDA and other regulatory bodies first need to approve aducanumab. And this is where the story gets complicated. Biogen tested aducanumab, like we said, in two identically designed phase three clinical trials. Now, back in March 2019, both of those studies were halted after independent monitors who were looking at unblinded data during an interim analysis concluded that aducanumab was unlikely to improve the cognition of patients more than a placebo. Aducanumab at that point looked like just another failed Alzheimer's drug. But then came October 2019, when Biogen announced that a new analysis based on previously unavailable data showed that aducanumab actually slowed cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients, compared with placebo. Biogen was now claiming that on one of the phase three studies, they demonstrated a positive and statistically significant result. The second study was not so positive, but it still supported the drug's efficacy, according to Biogen. That old interim analysis, which showed that the drug did nothing, was a mistake and should be disregarded, the company argued. It's fair to say that the aducanumab data are muddled and messy, and that's why the upcoming FDA advisory panel meeting is so fascinating. You know, Biogen insists that aducanumab should be approved. 
But we don't know at this point how the FDA really feels about all of the conflicting data from the two tortured clinical trials. And then we're going to hear and watch the deliberations of these outside experts. And they are tasked with sorting through all of these data to reach some type of consensus on what should be done with the drug. And then, of course, there is the political angle, because of course there is. President Trump has not made aducanumab a campaign issue. I don't think he's ever mentioned it. Uh, And the scheduling of the FDA panel after Election Day makes it unlikely that it'll become an election issue. However, that doesn't mean that politics won't play a role in the FDA's handling of aducanumab. Given the widespread need for a disease-modifying treatment and the millions of people either suffering from Alzheimer's or at risk of being diagnosed with the disease, or the many more who care for family members who are affected by it, the FDA could favor approving aducanumab, even with data that show marginal efficacy at best. But what Trump has done is that, you know, he's pressured the FDA to approve COVID-19 vaccines before Election Day. You know, he's even gone as far as accusing the agency of kind of actively delaying decisions to hurt him politically. You know, and, and in doing so, Trump has made FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn and some of the other high ranking FDA officials look weak, you know, despite their insistence that they are independent of the White House. So, you know, with that kind of backdrop, aducanumab could be an opportunity for the FDA to kind of, I guess, reassert itself by taking a strong stand that says only clear and convincing clinical data would support the drug's approval. And if that's lacking, then Biogen should conduct another clinical trial to get a more definitive answer. And all of this drama, as we said, comes to a head on November 6th, which makes for kind of an interesting situation in that we may know the fate of aducanumab before we know the winner of November 2nd's presidential election. Oh, God, Damien, please don't say that. If you were listening to last week's episode, you heard the bittersweet news of Rebecca Robbins' departure from STAT and this podcast. We miss Rebecca dearly, of course, and wish her the very best at her new job. But life here at STAT moves on, including the search for the perfect person to join Damien and me as co-host of this show. Which brings us to this week's very happy announcement. Hey, guys. Sorry to interrupt, but if it's okay with you, I'd like to try reading the opening line of this podcast. Damien does an okay job with it each week. But maybe I can bring a little bit more broadcast professionalism. So here goes. Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. Oh, Damien. You know, I love you, dude, but I think Meg might be the way to go here. So as I was about to say, Adam and I are incredibly excited to welcome Meg Terrell to the Read Out Loud family. As most of you know, Meg is the senior health and science reporter at CNBC. And starting next week, she will also be the new co-host of this podcast. Guys, I'm really, really excited to get to join your team. Rebecca's shoes are impossible to fill, uh, and she's been amazing to listen to every week, and everybody will miss her. Um, but I'm excited to get to have these awesome biotech chats with you every week and to, um, to get to have a lot of fun. I, too, am super excited to work with you, Meg. And people may not know this, but Meg is actually the OG STAT podcaster. Uh, Back in the early days of STAT, uh, we had a long-form podcast called Signal, 
and Meg, you were you were one of the co-hosts of that podcast, and we've learned a lot from that from that podcast uh, and built upon it here with Read Out Loud. And I guess I got to tell you, I am thrilled uh, that you are joining us as co-host. Well, I miss the days of Signal, which I got to co-host with Luke Timmerman, and we had an amazing team of folks. But one of the best gifts I think of that podcast to me was that I got to know everybody at Stat really early on. I got to go to your opening summit, I think, before Stat even launched, and so I've always felt like kind of a part of the Stat family, and I'm happy to be officially a small part of it now. Well, Meg, since we have you this week, why don't we do the podcast outro? I would love to. So that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Berg is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and maybe help us decide if Damien or I should read the opening line of the podcast next week. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud@statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.